The United States has experienced population growth across all races. The black population reaching 47.2 million in 2021, which is a 30% increase since 2000. The U.S. black population includes individuals who identify as black alone or combined with other races and Hispanics or Latinos who identify as black. In 2021, there were 4.8 million foreign black Americans representing 10% of the U.S. black population. This is up from 2.4 million people or 7% in 2000. The median age of the U.S. black population in 2021 was 33, five years younger than the overall U.S. population. Around 30% of black people were under 20 and 12% were 65 years or older. The New York City metro area has the most black residents, followed by Atlanta and Washington, D.C. In this episode of Badly Governed, Professor Lee Haynes and research analyst Peter Churchak look at how the black population is changing in major cities like Boston and the unpreparedness of our health and social systems. Lee Kamal Haynes is a lawyer and public health professional specializing in the intersection of public health and human rights. Her research and practice focus on the right to health, particularly emphasizing the impact of social movement and people's organization on health policy. Lee advocates for health equity and social justice, focusing on the social, political, and economic factors contributing to health inequities. She is a long-time health activist and organizer with the People's Health Movement. She's an associate professor and interim program director of the Master of Public Health Program in Health Equity at Siemens University. Peter Churchak is the senior research analyst at Boston Indicator, where he oversees the research center's web presence and support a range of data-driven research and writing. Peter has worked as an advocate, researcher, and communications professional for a number of nonprofit organizations, including the Toronto Environmental Alliance and Massachusetts Climate Action Network. He holds a master's degree in urban and environmental policy and planning from Tufts University and is a graduate of the University of Toronto. Introduce a couple of our speakers. Please welcome Peter Churchak, who is a research assistant, a research analyst at the Boston Indicators. And we have with us today Professor Lee Haynes from Siemens University. Now you might have noticed that this format is very different from any of the other episodes that we've done. It is because Professor Haynes is actually joining us from Belgium uh, at the moment. So we had to change platforms to accommodate that. I just want to take a moment to say to the both of you, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be Thank here. Thank you very much. Great. Yeah. Thank you. So why don't we just get started? I will start with you, Peter. Um, I, we all know that there's been a huge demographic um, shift within the United States. And I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of how that has impacted the city of Boston, a large metropolitan city that is similar to New York, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. And within that same vein, if Professor Haynes could talk about how these changes might have impacted um, potentially our systems. So you're referring to the Black population change? In um, right, so about can you start with an overview of um, the actual demographic shift, and then we can sort of like narrow it down to the okay. U.S. Black population. All right, yeah, sure. So we at Boston Indicators typically focus on Greater Boston or Boston as kind of an analysis an, or geographic unit. So we focus um, on these five county areas in Boston, uh, or rather Suffolk, Essex, Middlesex. Norfolk and Bristol County. So that's kind of where our expertise is. But a lot of the, you know, the major population centers in Massachusetts are in those counties. So um, a lot of the trends that you see kind of on East, in Eastern Mass, you'll see carried out throughout the state. Um, more broadly, we're seeing growth of Latino populations, multiracial populations, um, and to some extent, and in some places, uh, black residents, black residential population growth as well. Well, 
we're seeing a lot of older kind of white population move out of Massachusetts in particular, but a lot of a lot of the white population is aging. Um, boomers growing older, um, moving to Florida and just kind of leaving the area. As a result, um, our population is becoming more diverse, more uh, Latino, more black, uh, more Asian, younger generally, especially in kind of greater Boston um, than it has been at any point kind of in the recent past. And especially now, with a uh, recent movement of um, Haitians to the, the state, Venezuelans, a lot of other groups that are coming, um, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, but a lot of refugees, TPS settlements as well, um, that age continues to be pushed down. Um, so we're generally getting kind of younger, uh, those younger individuals um, and more diverse uh, than we have been in, in, in the past. Right. So can I ask um, a little bit about the white population that's actually moving outside of Boston? Mm -hmm. um, do we understand um, what might be motivating this 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 change? Um, also, um, how does that relate to maybe the size of households, the white household mm -hmm. as well? And then when it comes to actually young professionals who actually do come to Boston, mm -hmm to study that are white. Um, is it that they're moving outside of Boston because of lack of opportunities or just that the state hasn't make it favorable for them to do startups? For example, the MIT graduates or the Harvard graduates to start something off here. Is that actually factoring in to the fact that they're moving out to other spaces within the United States? You know, we don't quite know a lot about why people are moving. We have some data that can say like, you know, I'm moving because uh, I'm, I've found a different job. Um, I'm moving because uh, housing. And in fact, those are the top two reasons that people end up moving out of Massachusetts. There was a, a study a mm -hmm. while ago that did find that. Um, but, you know, because we are such a education focused state, we have a huge student body population. Um, and oftentimes they do run into difficulty kind of finding opportunities and niches and ways of starting businesses. But um, or finding ways to join businesses or companies, and they will move to find those jobs where where they are. Um, but mm -hmm. kind of on our end, what we have most we have found most frequently is that housing is such a huge, huge difficulty, and the cost of afford the cost of housing in Massachusetts mm -hmm. and in particular in Boston and Greater Boston is such a huge way in which um, it shapes how. Um, how people interact with the state and often mm -hmm. people are forced to move because they simply can't afford to live here anymore um mm -hmm. but on kind of the business front it's not something i'm super familiar with but we do know there is a little bit people moving for jobs and things of that nature okay perfect thank you for 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 that um dr um uh, professor haynes i was wondering if you could speak um to the fact that um, Peter suggested that a lot of the data shows that a lot of um, blacks are moving to black immigrants are moving to Boston or Massachusetts. Um, yet um, there's a lot of disparities in terms of affordability of housing or even transportation and where these people are actually um, being housed at. So a lot of the migrant population based on what I do know that's on the news um, are actually living in hotels um, if family members cannot support them or they just become homeless. I was wondering if you could speak um, to what would a state like or a city like Boston should be doing to support uh, this new population um, from a social uh, perspective? Thank you for that question. And just so everyone knows, Lige said that I am in Belgium and I'm, so I'm far away and I'm also not from the Boston area, but I teach at Simmons University, you know, in the public health program and I work with a lot of local students, um, including some who've migrated to Boston not that long ago. And in terms of the social systems, I think that housing and jobs is one of the main things because people come to the country and they need a place to live and they want to work to provide for themselves and their families. And so um, I think that one of the things that could be done is housing, like just providing housing to folks who need it. Um, and there are a, 
at least I know that in New York City, they have a statewide right to housing and the state does provide housing for migrants who come in and um, for however long they need it, as far as I understand. And so states could do something like that because the resources are there, um, but this just isn't a priority. In addition to housing, um, I think that there could be better processing, better facilitation of work um, and safe work for migrant people, um, because often the work is very precarious and, you know, from day to day, you just don't know if you'll have a job or not. And I think that security and work, like through some sort of faster facilitation of like papers to be able to get a job um, and uh, to be employed legally, I should say, would be very important for the state to do. Um, and then finally, um, you know, coming from a public health program, the health system, access to the health system should be facilitated um, in terms of whether there's access to something like Medicare, Medicaid, um, because, you know, folks have health needs, we all do. And, and I think that, um, that there's just like a web, like our social system is very, it's not cohesive. It's, it's very like systems are separated from each other. And so if there could be some kind of wraparound or facilitation of those various processes that, um, that migrant people need, that would at least take a huge like stress off of people. Um, in terms of just day-to-day -day living as they you know, work to build new lives in the country. Right. Oh, thank you for that. Um, I do know that within um, the state of Massachusetts, um, but since we're um, focusing on the city of Boston, those migrants do have access to health care. They, they do provide that to them through the mass health um, um, system. Um, I think they get a limited um, mass health access and they can only attend a specific hospital like the BMC or some sort of center to that nature. But if for whatever reason they had a condition and they were somewhere else, it would be problematic for them to actually um, attend um, a hospital um, somewhere else and get that co the same coverage. I don't know if they would actually, the state would actually pay for that. I'm not sure. Um, but I also want to go back to something that you said is the fact that they have to go to this process to sort of um get authorization or permit to work within the city or the state that they're they are residing in which is i think represent a significant disparity for this the immigrant group that is actually coming in because those folks are coming in and they need to be able to to settle down and to for them to do that they need to have adequate housing as well as a working job but that process requires that they pay i believe if i'm not mistaking 496 dollars for with the application and one of the issues that is happening is folks don't have that money unless if they have a family member in the city uh, or somewhere else who can actually send them this uh this money they won't be able to actually have access to the funding that they need to complete the application in the first place so yeah, um peter that, yeah. sorry no go ahead yeah, well i just wanted to say that your examples um because i mean obviously i don't know the system in boston perfectly, but one of the things that my students often talk about is the limitations of accessing the system, including right. cost, but also language. Um, so if folks do have something like mass health, then if you have to sign up when you do go access healthcare and meet your providers, then you know, can you still actually use that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Peter, I sort of wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the age distribution. As you mentioned earlier, you know, there has been significant change here within the city of Boston, um, where the actual uh, black population has increased mm -hmm. while the white population has decreased within the, the city. I was talk thinking about, could you tell us what does the demographics look like? What is the, the, the age um, distribution, what does it look like here in the city of Boston? If you have the information, if you don't have it, it's okay. Well, I actually uh, just pulled this from Massachusetts um, from kind of the data sets available. And, you know, like anywhere else, uh, Massachusetts is getting older, but um, our black population in particular is one of 
the younger populations in Massachusetts with a kind of a median age of around 33 years old. Um, white mm -hmm. population of uh, 43 years old, Latino population of about 23 years old, I think, off the top of my head. So mm -hmm. while not, you know, not the oldest group here, everybody is getting older and that's changed over time. And, you know, within the these kind of age groups, um, I have these numbers right here. We do see, uh, mm -hmm. you know, less, you know, black residents less than 20 years old, about make up about 29% of Massachusetts. Uh, 20 to 40 mm -hmm. is kind of where the the most the majority of our black residents are at around 31% of these um, residents are between 20 and 40 years old. Um, about 24%, 40 to 60, 14% uh, and 6%. Uh, um, 60 to 80 and 80 and above. So right now mm -hmm. our black residential resident population is mostly between 20 and 40 years old. So working age, um, you know, living with roommates, living with families, having kids, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you for, for, for um, sharing this data with us. So um, professor Haynes, how do you think this um, information might impact decisions around um, health and social services. I know historically, um, Massachusetts as a whole, not just the city of Boston, have had difficulty recruiting people of color um, to this state to come study because of the lack of resources that they have here in the state that sort of meets their needs and demands. So now we have a situation where we have mass migration. Migration. Um, these people aren't particularly moving here to the to the city because of um, educational purposes. That might be part of the plan for the younger population that are that are moving, right? Um, but what are the impacts? Um, in terms of social services and what the city should be taking into account um, when designing programs or uh, system improvements that support the settlement of this new population here. Yeah, so it's really interesting to hear these demographics. I don't think I realized that Boston was so young, even though I do know that there is the you know so many universities mm -hmm. there however with the migrant population coming in it seems that they are also very young mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they didn't very young i think 30 something years old is pretty young <laughs> and so i think <laughs> and i what it made me think when you were talking peter is that there is like a two sides, like there's the young people and then the people mm -hmm. who are aging, yeah. um, probably pretty quickly thinking about, and I guess in declining health, I can say just thinking about um, the poor health system and things in the US. And so in terms, and so there's like two different things to take into account because number one, this younger population need things like jobs and housing mm -hmm. and in particular things to be affordable. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, ways there are, you know, radical, I sh shouldn't say radical, but some people think something like universal basic income mm -hmm. is very radical, but being able to provide housing supplements or mm -hmm. support in, um, you know, raising wages, it would be very, very important for young people just to get by like day by day. I'm not sure what the um, minimum wage is. In Massachusetts, I'm sure it's higher than the federal minimum wage, but I know that um, that folks are, you know, pushing for better wages and also labor organizing. But then at the same time, and thinking about this older population, that is, um, I'm not sure what the the percentage makeup is, but there will be this burden on a very unprepared. In particular, healthcare system, um, and one of the things that I have been focusing on, and especially it, it really showed up during the COVID nineteen mm -hmm. pandemic, was the unpreparedness of, in particular, nursing homes and long term care because of privatization, and so mm -hmm. and racial disparities in particular showed up there because richer white people can afford to pay for private nursing homes and then poor people of color received very low quality of care in nursing homes that were funded by something like Medicaid and the federal government did not work to you know, enforce 
anti-discrimination or racism policies. And that's based on the research of um, Professor Moxley at Brigham Young University. But I think that that is something that should be anticipated at the state and the federal level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was wondering if you could actually dig a little bit deeper and talk a little bit about, um, I love how you talked about the systems at least the changes that need to occur within the healthcare system to support this population, especially the, the what is it, 12% Peter of the U.S. Black population are 65 years old or older, mm-hmm. if, I, if I remember correctly, and uh, 30% are black, under, under uh, 20, 20 years old or younger. Yeah. Right. So um, I was wondering, considering that a large section, a large part of the black population are actually now... Um, Immigrants or African American that were born abroad, mm-hmm. not within the United States, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have very specific cultural needs, and this is something I know the healthcare system has been struggling mm-hmm. with. On how do you meet the needs of these diverse populations? The black population alone is extremely diverse. So, how can we create a system that take into account all these different sub diversity? diverse groups within the, you know, the black population itself alone. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to just, Um, sorry. Yeah. I just want to kind of jump back in here. Yeah. Just, and to, to highlight kind of the diversity within greater Boston, about 37%, 38% of greater Boston's black residents are uh, foreign born. They, came from abroad. Um, and the challenges we have mm-hmm. with language barriers uh, exist up and down the system, whether you know people are trying to sign their mm-hmm. kids up for school um, and go through the Boston Public Schools sign-up systems or Norwood or whatever, or um, down mm-hmm. through to uh, care homes or our we have, I think, in Massachusetts, a, a very strong focus on moving to aging in place. Um, and and building up that capacity for a lot of residences and residential uh, you know, people so they can stay in their homes. But we run into the, again, problems of kind of language barriers of accessing those services, accessing the funds to allow you to build a, you know, a, a stairway moving up and down your, um, or a uh, mobile stairway to go up and down your stairs to get to your second floor. Those funds, you know, they're not locked behind anything, but they're in English and they're in kind of the most common languages we have. But we have, to, to your point, like a vast variety of uh, language groups here. Um, often many Haitian, who speak Haitian Creole or, or any number of other languages that don't have kind of that services. And especially when our services are so stretched as they are right now, getting in touch with someone who can do that for you becomes even more difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Peter, um, can you talk a little bit about the um, Black wealth um, in the city of Boston and this migration? How is that going to impact it uh, or not? Um, What does the landscape look like as far as that? Oh, sure. Um, Black wealth and wealth at the local level level is, is very difficult to understand. There's essentially very limited data on that. Um, But we do know kind of nationally, uh, wealth is almost uh, ridiculously concentrated in in white households, something like Mm -hmm. uh, $298,000. In a a seminal research research piece from 2015, the Color of Wealth in Boston report found that um, for white households, roughly had $298,000, where American-born Black have around uh, $8 in total wealth and um, $0 for Caribbean Black or $12,000. That's a big difference, but I don't quite remember the number. Um, But that that uh, report in and of itself is kind of going to be updated in the near future with a much bigger sample size. So we'll have a much better mm-hmm. understanding of of um, kind of wealth distribution here. Um, but we do know there are massive gaps uh, in those, you know, between white and black and white and Latino. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, you know, Professor Haynes's point, to Lee's point, um, that wealth and the ability to access uh, wealth and kind of those resources dramatically affects your ability to receive care. Happy to hand that over to you to talk about more about that. Please. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that um, that was standing out to me is these barriers, including culture and language and that affecting the ability to access care and even afford care, because if those those barriers also prevent us from creating wealth and and because I, I try to be solutions focused. And one of the things I did some focus groups with um, a couple of years ago with some community-based organizations in Boston or in and around the state, actually. And a very interesting, I guess, concept came up was, and it's not a new concept, was brain drain and brain drain from these very diverse migrant communities. And someone was saying that a young woman from their community had gone and got an education in nursing or some healthcare field, and she wanted to come back to her community, but she couldn't because it was totally unaffordable. Like the the health center there just didn't pay enough money. And so I think like investment in the systems on the ground in these communities is so important. And it seems so often that the state, uh, the government leaves it up to the people to create mm -hmm. this for themselves. And, um, and I also think that in this young woman's situation, I mean, she's ideal. She probably speaks the language. She can provide advice or counseling or care in a very culturally sensitive way. I mean, for example, if it's food advice, then she'll know what the food is because that's her community. And so I think that um, that there is too much of a, like Peter is saying, that there's like these very like local things happening, like in communities within the different cultures and kind of lines of diversity, if I can say it that way, that kind of just get swathed. That's not a word, I don't think, but they get painted over with like a broad stroke. Um, but I really feel like that's where the power is and that the state should invest in that power for communities to be able to, you know, build wealth and power and also, you know, their own well-being. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you because I do think that um, not just housing, but schools have become unaffordable. And I think uh, speaking for, as an immigrant person, um, putting yourself to college is no easy task, right? Um, I know I had to work a full-time job and go into school full-time at the same time just so I could afford um, and to give myself an education. It's not that my parents didn't want to do that. They just couldn't afford it. My mom was already working three jobs, um, you know, so they, I couldn't ask her to do any more. So uh, do you think that um, this is an issue that should be addressed more at the, at, at the national level? Like we have this whole debate about loan forgiveness. You talk about community investment. I mean, might this be, you know, a form of community investment as well as trying to be provide or pay people more equitable pay at the health care systems, right? So a person of color, there's a great need for this type of personnel at the, you know, it, within the system. But yet the affordability of living in Boston is like nearly impossible. No one can afford housing. Everything is super expensive. Transportation is expensive. Um, but yet, you know, our salaries are not commensurate to the cost of living here. So I think there's a great deal of work that needs to be done. People need to look at this more objectively, I think, and not from a, an emotional standpoint uh, and try to like do right by the, the people that are living here. Um, so Thank you for covering some of that. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that, Peter? Um, yeah, no, I just totally agree with uh, everything you just said. We we did our own kind of deep dive into care work in particular, um, which might be worth checking out, which explores the challenges facing a lot of care workers and kind of the relationship with wealth, um, inability to access retirement, uh, retirement programs, the kind of overall lower wages and how these all disproportionately fall on on workers of color and especially women of color who perform a lot of these roles. Um, it's it's a real challenge right. that we, we face here, and especially in Massachusetts, which has the highest child care costs in the nation, um, in particular in greater mm -hmm. Boston. So totally understand where that's all coming from. Right. So I was hoping that you could um, talk 
a little bit about, about the disparity that seems to exist within the U.S. The black population, but we're going to focus mostly uh, uh, on the city of Boston, um, since that's where your work has, has um, taken place. So can you talk a little bit more about what might be influencing the disparity um, 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 in the Afro-Latino um, um, population? They have a very low... Uh, income, their households have a very low income, median income. I think what if correct me if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it's like forty two thousand annually for a household I think, of five. Uh, well, what we found when we were kind of working on this for um, our report was, uh, yeah, about forty five thousand um, for a household mm -hmm. uh, within Greater Boston, right. and about thirty five uh, for households Afro Latino households in Boston. Um, those are you know, estimates. So, you know, a little, little fudgy, especially mm -hmm. when kind of the overall numbers are much smaller than we would really like, but that's kind of what we found when we were working on this uh, recent project of ours. Yeah. Do we have an understanding of what's causing this, this disparity? Because I think on the national level, um, the Afro American population um, seems to be doing okay as far as their median income level. Um, so why do we have this discrepancy here? Is it due to gentrification that's happening in communities like East Boston or other parts of Boston that's causing that and people are being displaced and then now they have exuberant costs of transportation because they have to go farther away like Fall Weaver. I mean, do we understand, do we understand what's causing um, this discrepancy um, between kind of Afro-Latino households and other Black households. Um, yes, correct. You know, I wish my colleague who helped me write this or helped us write this um, was here, uh, James Jennings, because he could really speak to that in a way that has that expertise. Um, I can say, you know, with mm -hmm. some some amount of knowledge, is that you know Afro-Latino households are often younger than um, households, you know, Black mm -hmm. foreign-born households or American multi-generational Black households. So that might be part of it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. they're just you know growing up in a different time in a different space. Um, we know that Black households nationally are more likely to have one earner as compared to foreign-born Black households, which often have two earners um, for whatever reason. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we didn't, I didn't personally dive so much into kind of the disparities between Black and Afro-Latinos, but um, I do, you know, those are the kind of things that we found in other, looking at other Black and inter-Black inter populations, and I think probably those have a little bit of a role to play. Um, and there, there mm -hmm. remain like challenges with the job prospects and a lot of the systemic challenges we continue to face here, both, both in Boston and nationally. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and maybe also the type of line of work, I mean, probably Afro-Latinos, correct me if I'm wrong, I could be completely off, um, might be more on the service type of work, like, um, or even like cleaning or that type of you know frontline customer service that type of lock um, work. It's possible. Mistaken. We're we're planning or, on tackling kind of a more over a broader overview of um, kind of the economic situation of of Black residents in Greater Boston, um, eventually sometime in the future. But it, it's a question we've asked ourselves as well: is like what what is the economic situation of Black households of Black job Black residents? What kind of jobs do they use? How does that break out within um, these populations? And I, you know, at the moment, we just don't know the answer to that. We haven't looked at it so closely, but we do know um, through our work when we were looking at kind of COVID impacts way back in 2020, a um, lot of residents were, a lot of Black residents, Latino residents are service workers. And on kind of, we referred to them as frontline workers at the time. Um, and those most impacted and significantly so when everything shut down in 2020. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Professor Haynes, I know you talk a little bit about how um, states and city governments can actually sort of reduce the economic um, distress in communities of color, particularly when it um, <clears throat> evolves educational um, equity. Right. So I was wondering from a policy standpoint, because I know this is your area, um, <clears throat> I wanted to know, I mean, 
what is your assessment of existing policies and how do you think those policies and I know you probably haven't looked at the state policies, but at least the national ones. Um, how do you think those policies um, should be improved um, to sort of address a lot of these inequities? I hear health equity a lot, and I do know that a lot of institutions <clears throat> are investing quite a bit of efforts to see if they can improve things, but um, similarly to the general population, um, a lot of those efforts aren't felt. Mm -hmm. So um, how can those policies um, be improved in such a way where people can really start noticing a difference in their lives? That's a wonderful question. I think one of the, my assessment, not that I've said as Peter has with data and the law, but my assessment of, you know, my experience in law that I have read is that it's not responsive to the expressed needs of people. Mm. And like you say, policy is my thing. And I'm very much interested in policy making and the policy making process. And to a very large extent, the only participation we get in the policy making process very often is voting. Mm -hmm. And that kind of can go either way from year to year. And so I think that policies can be improved by improving the policymaking process, um, doing things like impact assessments, environmental health, economic impact assessments, and actually incorporating those into policy. And some of those assessments should definitely include the people who will be affected by that policy. Right. Um, people should, it's a, you know, a participation as a human rights principle. We should be able to participate in the decisions that affect our lives. Um, I think another way to improve policy, and I, and for people who are listening and watching, I know I'm not actually talking about the substance of the policy, but I think that even if we have the right substance, we still miss the mark because some of these kind of um, protective and protective mechanisms aren't in place. And, and so one of the ones that's very important is accountability. We write laws and we make laws and we get very happy about it, but then there's no accountability mechanism. Like if the law isn't implemented, then is there some sort of way to make the government do that, you know, maybe besides going through the courts. And so I think that there are like very, really simple ways, like right into the law that, you know, if this doesn't happen in 60 days, then there will be some sort of action like mm -hmm. automatically. And, and so I think that those are some of the, the ways to improve policy, to improve the substance. We should talk to the people and to improve the implementation so that people feel the impact in their lives and there needs to be more participation and accountability um, in the process. Thank you. Do you feel like there's enough been there's enough money that's been invested by our federal governments or even state governments as well in terms of <clears throat> research work to really dive deep into these disparities? I do know that the NIH has an institution that deals with health disparities, but it doesn't appear to me as though um, on an annual basis, uh, this particular institution is funded at the same level as other institutions like NHLBI and et cetera, right? So, I mean, is there a discrepancy um, with the allocation or appropriation of funding, federal funding, when it comes to investing um, in research or programs or initiatives that deals with um, the changing um, face of this nation, like that deals with multiculturalism and all the complexities around that. I mean, should there be more done there at all levels? So I think so, definitely. And my response to the previous question went into a different direction because what I had in mind to say was that, and so thank you for opening this question, <laughs> is that what we see on the ground reflects the priority <laughs> of the government. Mm -hmm. 
and that there does need to be a reprioritization of the law and part of the law is where the money goes right and um and so that's a good point Elijah. like the research about where the money goes is very important and for what i understand now and i don't have the data mm-hmm. is that a lot of the money is um well there's number one a lot of the federal money overall is tied up in the war machine and so like the military budget gets all the money and then when it comes to the system of social protection mm-hmm. um there's very little money there and then a lot of it um and maybe this is more of a conservative talking point, but it gets caught up in administration. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of it also gets caught up in the private sector because the government will pay private providers to do things like, because as you mentioned that schools were expensive and sometimes those schools actually get federal money and the same with hospitals and health centers. So, um, so I think that there is a connection between um, the money that goes into research, like that should definitely be increased, but also the research approach. Like mm-hmm. the research should definitely be community-based research. It sounds like that's what you do, Peter, to actually get the voice of the community into what's done and kind of what goes out to the public in terms of priorities. Yeah, actually, thank you for touching base on that because that was going to be my follow-up question is that, well, you know, it seems to me that every research dollars goes to the same entities and the same investigators and the same people all the time or the same large NGOs all the time. Oftentimes, those institutions exclude community as if community, the community perspective was irrelevant. So I was just sort of like, you know, as you know, um, I also have a master's in public health where we study CBPR, um, which is a type of research that actually incorporates community as part of, as a stakeholder in the research, not like a, a lead, you know, like one of, just like the investi- regular investigators or traditional type of investigators to the program, which I think is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's difficult. There are a lot of complexities around it, a lot of people involved, but I think it's very necessary. And in the same vein, I want to say that I would like to see more federal funding going to this type of framework, even at the institution that don't typically um, fund projects that uses this framework. I kind of feel like they they do need to start asking investigators to incorporate community into the, the work that they do. Because oftentimes what I find um, is that they extract a lot from community, but yet we're not involved in decision makers, neither does the, the actual innovation that derived from this work um, or whatever product they derive from this work ever gets back to the community. So that is something that definitely needs to change. Now, uh, Peter, I kind of wanted to touch base a little bit about uh, the demographic shift which also emphasized um, a significance, the significance mm. of mental health services, right? So as we know, historically speaking, regardless of where you're from, if you are a person of color, especially in the context of the conversation, since we're talking about the black population, they have suffered from tremendous um, generational trauma. Um, in addition, a lot of them that are migrating into the United States, have to go through harsh conditions um, in the Amazon rainforest and other spaces that they had to travel through to get here. So considering uh, the potential rise in these various stressors and mental health challenges that these populations are actually sort of introducing um, to our population here, which is sort of like, you know, um, adding to what we already were dealing with, I was wondering um, if you could talk a little, little bit about the length of systemic racism, discrimination, and social inequalities in Boston, um, and how can we address, and I, I guess this one is, this, this part of the question is really for Professor Haynes, how can we address this issue uh, to ensure that the population, the new population here in Boston is receiving mental health support and the best care possible? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing in mental health because it is so neglected. And and I know that, and maybe this is stereotyping, but I'm also a Black person. <laughs> so, um, so I know that there is a huge stigma around mental health in 
the Black community, if I can kind of use a broad language about all of us. I second um, Okay. (laughs) And so I think that part of it, I mean, and it's very unfortunate because mental health problems are seen as a weakness and that you just have to power through. And I... And I thought about this a lot because breaking down that stigma, I think, is what's most important, but it shouldn't be on us only, us alone, to do it. And and I think that um, what can be done is for mental health to just be built into what we already have mm-hmm. um, because people just don't talk about it, mm-hmm. like even saying it, like saying depression or I'm depressed gets a really strong and negative reaction often. So I think that in not only health centers, but also if people are getting social services or housing or looking for jobs, that a discussion about mental health can just be brought in. Like, how are you feeling? Do you need to talk to someone? I mean, and just to kind of, I think the more you talk about it, the kind of more natural it feels. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, because I think that it's, very much often like, well, you know, in that community, they don't like to talk about it and we don't want to impose, but there is a systems change that can happen Mm -hmm. to kind of facilitate folks being comfortable talking about mental health problems. But then at the same time, there also should be parity in Mm -hmm. mental health care. So if people do want to seek help, then the Mm -hmm. mass health or whatever insurance um, or coverage people have should provide for mm-hmm. mental health services equally to yeah. other health services. Totally, I agree. Yeah, um, Peter, no, Peter, it, go ahead. it is, you know, I can't speak to kind of demographic access or, you know, access to mental health care kind of at the, at the population level, but I do know that Massachusetts has actually started investing um, in community behavior, behavioral health centers, community behavioral response teams, um, organizations and kind of pseudo-governmental structures and I think like actual um, uh, groups that will respond to a call, say, I'm having a mental health crisis, can you come and help me out Um, without requiring you to go to an emergency room? And this was a big part of um, Mm -hmm. some recent legislation, big part of the uh, uh, Reform Act that passed a couple of years ago that allows and helps kind of address a lot of the overburdened nature of our healthcare system, where people experiencing mental health crisis would go to the emergency room, um, whereas they could actually potentially get the support if someone came to their home and said, oh, you know, I have an Ativan, I have a, I'm a trained social worker, I can talk to you. Um, and Massachusetts has invested in that, in that system and has begun to incorporate it into, um, into how they treat crises. And of course, there's still a long way to go. Um, There are still wait times for healthcare beds, um, for inpatient services and crisis services. But one of the ways they can kind of address um, those resources upstream are in those care teams that go to the people that need the help as soon as they kind of receive a call. Um, It's well worth kind of speaking to that integration you're referring to. Um, thank you for this, Peter. Um, I definitely think that it is, it is a great start <clears throat> um, that they're requiring that people even get uh, uh, mental health assessments annually. Um, I still think that there still needs oh, to yeah. be a great deal of work that needs to be done. Um, I think that the issue that I have is not only the perspectives that um, the Black population has uh, as it relates to mental health, um, that needs to be addressed. And I don't think that the law actually um, has um, components that actually requires that so the state works with communities who go, uh, community centers who goes into community and sort of educate and try to change that behavior and that thinking. I don't think the, the actual law yeah. goes that deep. It's great that they have a number that people can call and say, I'm not feeling okay today, you know, and you can call and say, well, how are you feeling? Why do you feel this way? Um, It's just not going as far as it should have gone. Um, And I think that state government as well as city government needs to do a lot more in that space. They really need to be very intentional about going into community, working alongside community to help them address their own problems. And that's what's not that's not what's happening right now. 
Um, so I want to be very mindful of the time. Um, this was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I don't know about pleasure. you guys, but it was great. Um, is yeah, there anything you, you want to say um, before we break um, that you want to leave with the audience? Uh, let's start with um, Professor Haynes. Well, thank you for having me. And it was great to hear you talk about your work, Peter, um, because having the evidence and the data is so important. And I guess I would leave with people um, is to also think about solutions because I, I have a thing that I say to my students and it's becoming a rallying cry for me is what do we do when we win? We protest, we do advocacy, we write policy briefs, we sit and get mad all the time. And, and I think that it's inspiring, um, maybe as frustrating, but also inspiring to think about, so what do we do? And that's why I always try to have ideas and say, well, maybe we could do this and maybe we could do that. And, and I, so I encourage folks who are watching and listening to really think about like, what are the solutions that we want to see and how do we implement them so that they do actually help people and change people's lives? Thank you. Uh, Peter, you know, I love the work that you do. Uh, thank you for coming and sharing with us. Is there anything you uh, want to Yeah, thank you for the today? opportunity. And thank you again, uh, Lee, for exploring your work as well. It was a pleasure to get to know you and, and the work you do. Um, all I can say is that we have persistent systemic inequalities in in Boston, in Massachusetts, in this country. Um, and the data that we work with every day kind of allows us to highlight those, but we do depend on people working outside of our organization. I'm just a think tank um, to go and make those changes. And all we hope to do is provide people with the best resources available to, to actually find and highlight and talk about those and have those conversations in a meaningful way with them, with their organizations and with their constituents. And, you know, that's, if, if that's what we do, that's great. Thank you very much both for coming um, and chat with us at BG. Um, and I hope you can, you guys can return to the show again another time on a different capacity.